Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I complete part two of a two-part podcast series with Matthew Silverman, Global Trade Director of Export Control and Trade Compliance, and we look at the key components of a best practices trade compliance program, the pace of sanctions uh, from Obama through Biden, what trade compliance will look like into the future, and how does trade compliance fit into ESG? It's a fascinating exploration. I know you will enjoy it. If you did get the chance to do so, I would suggest you go back and listen to episode 570, which is part one of Matt Silverman's two-part podcast series. We go into Matt's professional background, how he got into trade compliance, and what is trade compliance. Matt, I'd now like to turn to OFAC, uh, BIS, and trade compliance programs. In the summer of 2019, OFAC issued for its the first time I'm aware of, um, a, uh, its version of a best practices compliance program. And obviously, it's focused on its remit, export control. Uh, but I found it uh, extraordinarily useful in a wide variety of other compliance dif- disciplines. Uh, obviously, anti-bribery, anti-corruption, uh, but also anti-money laundering. Uh, and I thought some of the takeaways were something every compliance officer needs to consider. And OFAC really focused on the who are you doing business with, uh, not really on the sales side of things, but on your supply chain side and who you're selling to. Um, and that's something that I think every ABC, AML, and every other topic, a cybersecurity compliance professional needs to consider. But I was wondering if you can maybe uh, just – outline what you thought the highlights of that trade compliance program uh, were and if there are elements that you think lend themselves to really across compliance, what might those be? Yeah, so there's there's certainly a lot. Um, That guidance is very helpful. Um, The Department of Commerce, um, BAS, Bureau of Industry and Security, also has really good guidance for um, specifically for an export compliance program and what needs to be um, what needs to be included, um, how to write a policy, what needs to be in your policies, et cetera. So I, I would um, point point people to both um, OFAC as well as BAS for, for really good guidance in terms of what should be included in a trade compliance program. Uh, of, of course, a big part of it is knowing your, knowing your customer, knowing your end user, um, um, knowing your business partners. It's, it's, uh, it can't, I think, be uh, emphasized enough how important that is 
and and making sure that you're doing that due diligence on on your part. Um, there are opportunities for both BIS uh, or to work with BIS, the Department of Commerce, as well as the State Department, if you happen to be in the uh, in the manufacture or sale of uh, of military um, products and equipment, you can work with those organizations also to do some of that due diligence work. There, um, there's a I think it's still called the Blue Lantern Program within State Department and and Commerce has a similar. De- Department where they will do end user checks, so you can be assured uh, where your products are ending up, that they're actually ending up there with the correct um, uh, customers or business partners that you work with. So, working both with your or, or making sure that you know both your customers as well as who you're sourcing from um, um, is is incredibly important uh, in a in a trade compliance program. I mean, just in general. My, my, any advice I'd give to someone who's looking to either start one or improve, um, uh, it, it needs to be well-staffed, and, and it's not an area within compliance where I think you can afford to have too many people who are uh, too junior or unseasoned or unaware um, of, of what trade compliance is. I mean, within my team, we have subject matter experts who have been doing this work for a very long time. We have licensed customs brokers and export compliance specialists and people who have been trained um, and and understand and have connections also, not only within the industry, but within the applicable um, um, government agencies themselves. So it's an area that needs to be um, well-staffed with experienced professionals. Um, Having a trade compliance manual, and there are lots of different uh, policies that that can and should be included within your trade compliance manual. So whether it's a technology control plan, which is incredibly important, whether it's a visitor management policy, um, obviously you need to have either policies or procedures in there that have to do with um, license determination and things like screening. How do you screen customers? How do you screen business partners? A lot of that's going to be automated. Um, So having a reputable um, um, repository and reputable software like an SAP or Oracle to help you screen for license determination determination issues um, and and your customers and business partners that you're going to be working with. There's a there's a lot of different um, there's a lot of different elements there. Uh, in terms of kind of more generally being proactive and working with the business uh, and doing training proactively within trade compliance, I think uh, makes for a very good trade compliance program, and it's something that is expected not only from uh, from Commerce and State Department, but also from the Department of Justice as well. Um, there's a lot of information out there from the DOJ who has some um, some scope of export uh, enforcement authority when they look at things like how you are training people within your business. Do Are they well-trained? Do they understand trade compliance? Not just your trade professionals. I mean, hopefully your trade compliance professionals, your subject matter experts have been trained and understand their jobs, but also how do you train the business? How, how do sales and procurement and even HR, when you start talking about deemed export issues, how do all those different functional groups really understand export compliance and trade compliance and how it impacts their job. So that's another really important part of a trade compliance program um, is is not not keeping too far from the business itself. 
Uh, in many ways, trade compliance does not operate in a in a vacuum. There is a lot of interaction with the business. So having those policies and procedures, not just on paper, not just on your intranet site, but making sure that they are rolled out to the business that that your um, that your salespeople, your HR people, your engineers are trained on them and understand how do their jobs impact trade compliance. And, and vice versa is, uh, is, I think, an incredibly important part of, of a trade compliance program. So, Matt, um, let me turn to uh, perhaps that veiled land of the future. And I think I started off talking about wh- why I think trade compliance became more important and certainly more um, uh, what's the right phrase, not public, but uh, prominent during uh, the Trump administration. And then, of course, we had COVID-19, and we, have mass, we had massive supply chain disruptions. We had uh, massive amounts of uh, PPE coming into the country and, and a wide variety of other um, items and products to help deal with the COVID-19. Now, hopefully, we're out of that and moving to whatever the current new normal is now, but it, it's, it strikes me that after the, the buildup of sanctions under starting under the Obama administration, certainly under the Trump administration, frankly, continuing under the Biden administration, that trade compliance will be even more important in the future. So if you agree with that assessment, um, what would you tell a young uh, professional, either a lawyer coming out of law school or a business school grad or or someone who, who maybe took some compliance courses about looking at trade compliance as really one of the most dynamic areas of compliance. And you've talked about the four general areas. We really didn't even get to the policy aspect that you've worked right. on early in your career, but why it really may be one of the most exciting compliance areas around. Yeah, it, it is. So it's a, it's it's an always changing area. It's very dynamic. Um, I, I would say to to a young professional or a young lawyer or a young compliance professional, um, I, I would of course encourage them to go into it because I think it's only going to get um, for the better or worse a more more dynamic and interesting um, um, with this administration, but even but even going forward um, with geopolitical developments with Russia and um, and China especially. Um, it's uh, it, it's really an area I, I think of law and of compliance where there's um, there's so much really to delve into. Uh, I, I think if I had to give some advice to a young uh, trade compliance professional, it would be a couple things. Well, one is um, especially because of what's happened with COVID nineteen and changes to the um, supply chain and issues like that. It is really I think more important than ever for trade professionals to know their business very well. So. You can be an expert on the laws and be able to recite the regulations and have all the right government connections, and that's great. But if you don't understand your business, if you don't know what products you make and the technologies that you have, if you don't understand how your supply chain works and who you source from, and I don't just mean this in terms of know your customer for compliance reasons, I mean just being able to have those conversations internally with your sales folks or your supply chain folks. Um, when it comes to, you know, we need to change our, our supply chain. We need to start sourcing from this country or this party instead. And they're looking to you now for compliance advice and for approval. Um, and you can be 
not only the person who gives that, but you can also be a, a proactive member. I think that it's important within compliance, obviously, whether you're in trade compliance or another form of compliance, we often get looked at as the roadblock, as the, as the piece of the organization that's there to say no, uh, that, that the business comes with with a concern. And what I like to be in as part of the kind of compliance function and within trade, compli- within trade compliance is a little bit more proactive, right? So if I know that there are upcoming changes, um, if I see in the federal register that there's going to be changes to export classifications, if I see in the news that based on um, um, geopolitical events, events and um, other issues that there may be changes to trade um, trade policy and in turn trade regulations, whether from an import-export sanctions perspective, to, to, to be proactive, to come to your business, to go to whoever it is, your chief compliance officer, your CEO, your GC, or just to go to individual members of your business, whether it's supply chain, HR, et cetera, and, and talk to them about what down the line potentially you think may happen. And, and if that means looking at other opportunities to source from elsewhere, from a, a supply chain and procurement perspective, whether it means, um, you know, we saw under the Trump administration, uh, I mean, at least in the area that I worked and, and if others who are listening, who are in my same area disagree, but we saw a huge, um, really a drastic change in terms of deemed export licenses that were being approved. We could not hire a, we could not get approval to hire a, for example, a Chinese national, uh, a Russian national, many other nationalities to work on export controlled uh, products or, or technologies. And that was a, that was a huge impact on our business and being able to work, for example, with HR ahead of time and kind of give them a forecast of when do we expect this to change? How is this going to impact our hiring going forward? We haven't yet seen a change in the Biden administration, um, but we're expecting that there may that that may be coming down the line. So I'd say to to young trade compliance professionals, as as important it is to know the law, uh, it's it's equally important, if not no more so, to really understand your business, to be proactive, uh, to to not to not necessarily wait for to make sure that the people within the organization are trained, so that they know what questions and issues to approach you with, but also to be very proactive in terms of working with the business and and trying to forecast a little bit what may be coming down the line and how it may impact the business. Um, but, but like you said, it is a, it is a really exciting and dynamic area. If you're, if you're into geopolitics, if you're into the law, if you, whether it's the black letter law or policy issues, there's, there's a lot to, um, a lot that's always changing in in a really exciting area to work in. And like I said before, now having more visibility, now that trade compliance is a little more, um, um, you know, sexier, if I can say, and and has a lot more visibility at an upper upper level of the organization. It's it's a really fun area to work in um, to get to get that visibility and 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 to get that appreciation and understanding from the business that you're that you're there to help the business to the extent you can, but you're there to protect the business to protect the employees um, to make sure that we don't have serious fines, no one goes to jail, all those things. Um, it's, it's, um, I think it's a much more appreciated part of, um, part of compliance now. We'll be right back with more from Matt Silverman after this message.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So there's one topic that we have danced around exclusive, not exclusively, but uh, quite a bit. And it's one of the most ubiquitous phrases of 2021, and that's ESG. And it yeah. strikes me that 80 to 90 percent of what you have talked about fits directly into ESG. It could yeah. be environmental. It could be sustainability. And it certainly could be governance. So yeah. where do you see trade compliance fitting into ESG from, from really any of the perspectives you deal with? Yeah. So I, I think, like you said, there's, there's a bit of, um, a bit of E, a, B, a, a bit of S and a bit of G in trade compliance from a, um, you know, from an environmental standpoint, certainly when you talk about things, which I don't deal with every day anymore. Um, but when I was in more of the policy and government sector, you know, when we talk about um, um, uh, free trade agreements that are being negotiated, right, and and the language that's included in those environmental issues, the impact on climate that um, that that free trade agreements or other kinds of trade agreements can have, um, as well as labor issues as well. So there's the E and the the S in terms of from a, a policy perspective. When I worked at the U.S. Trade Representative or um, um, the U.S. Senate on trade legislation, lots of different environmental and, and human rights issues that would kind of be tied into uh, uh, free trade agreements and who we were going to do business with or, or, or what, what other countries the U.S. was going to continue to trade with. Those were two big, um, two big concerns. In fact, when you see a lot of senators who opposed um, trade agreements, it was for those exact reasons. There weren't strong enough environmental provisions or human rights provisions in those agreements. From from a corporate standpoint, I still see a little a little bit of that. I mean, it it pops up in different ways. Um, I, I'd say that there are certainly. Um, maybe under the more under the S, um, um, there are human rights issues, human trafficking, human rights issues, where we're sourcing from, where we're doing business with, um, that can certainly play a role. And I've had individual employees reach out to me when we have, um, when there has been geopolitical events going on in the world and have said to me, you know, what, why, why does our company continue to do business with? with these parties or with, with this entire country. Right. Uh, and it's for, um, social, social reasons or environmental reasons. And, and I think that to some extent, the business has to listen to that as well, whether it's coming from their own individual employees or there's outside pressure in terms of the, the parties and, um, and people and countries that we do business with. Obviously we are, you know, we are restricted, um, um, we follow what the whether it's the U.S. government or what other ap other applicable agency or government we have to comply with. So there's a there's a piece of it where we kind of just follow along. And if a if a, a certain agency or government has decided you can't do business with this country for 
human rights issues, abuses, then we don't do business with them. But there are other times when I have worked for companies where they have gone above and beyond what is required by the regulations and have made the determination that even though there may not be a, a specific sanction or regulation that prevents our company from doing business with this party or this country, we we internally have made the decision that we aren't going to do business with them. And part of that is from both internal and external pressure. And some of that relates to, um, you know, ESG issues. The other um, interesting piece of it, I think from a um, I, I guess it's part of the S as well is diversity issues. And we don't really think about um, diversity and inclusion within trade compliance. Um, but it, it, there is a piece of it where um, there is overlap. And that's when we talk about um, deemed export issues, which is the idea that, you know, transferring technology to a non-U.S. person, right, is a deemed export. The U.S. government deems that to be an export. If I if I transfer technology, for example, to a Chinese national, an Australian national, um, a Zimbabwean national, transferring that export-controlled technology to that person is a deemed export in the same way it is shipping a physical box to that country would be. Um, and that ties into then who we can hire, who we can promote. Can we put certain people in certain jobs or even hire certain people based on their nationality, their citizenship, where they live in the world? Um, it's, it's an issue that has come up a lot um, um, in, in different contexts, but there are a lot of discrimination concerns that come up with regard to not being able to hire certain people based on their nationality. There's an interesting, you can probably find it on YouTube or something, but Elon Musk was talking at a, a conference somewhat recently and someone raised a hand and said, why, why, why do you only hire, um, I'm paraphrasing, but wh why do you only hire U.S. citizens or U.S. persons? Why don't you hire people from other countries? Now, obviously that's pretty hyperbolic and that's not true, but his response was, well, we can't hire people from, from anywhere and from any nationality because there are U.S. restrictions on who we can hire. A lot of employees don't know that. A lot of compliance people don't know that. And I think it's important. Another, I think, important piece of a trade compliance program is making sure that you're educated, you're educating your internal employees, as well as obviously the HR function and talent recruitment on who we can hire, where we might need to get a license to hire someone, if we can't get that license, really having having restrictions on internal hiring and and making the company and individual employees aware of the fact that it's not a discriminatory intent on the part of the company because a lot of them um, think that it is. So that's um that's a piece also of the S within ESG that I think is somewhat overlooked from a trade compliance perspective, but um, but an important piece. Um, making sure that we are um, um, following the laws, kind of balancing the discrimination issues as well as the export compliance issues, but making sure that we're um, hopefully not getting too much pushback from from people who may think that there are um, that there is discrimination at play with regard to who we can can and can't hire. So um, yeah, like you said, a lot of a lot of overlap there with um, with ESG when it comes to trade compliance. And unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics we've touched on, whether they get in touch with you or you might have some suggested reading for them or articles or perhaps even a podcast or two. Uh, where, uh, where can they go? 
Yeah. So, um, so thanks, Tom. It's, uh, it's been really nice to talk to you today. So um, anyone is welcome to reach out to me um, directly. They can find me um, obviously on, on LinkedIn, um, Matthew Silverman, and I'm at Viavi Solutions. You can also contact me directly, uh, matthew.silverman at viavisolutions.com. There is really, a, I think, a wealth of information out there for the trade compliance professional or anyone looking to get a little more information. Um, obviously, the um, you know, the government directly agency websites, if you want really detailed information on things like new uh, new regulations and country groups and where you can export to and not based on your classification, um, the, the Department of Commerce, BIS, that's the Bureau of Industry and Security, their website, um, if you're... Um, in the in the business of uh, of exporting or importing or manufacturing military uh, non civil uh, products and technologies in the U S. Obviously, the State Department governs that. That's the Directorate of Defense Trade Controls (DDTC). Um, and then, just kind of more generally, to get uh, more more information, um, there is a, a really good site um, that I'll I guess plug. It's a, it's the International Trade Blog. Um, and the, um, the website is shippingsolutions.com and they offer, um, a lot of really good input, both from a logistical standpoint, as well as some of the, um, kind of larger issues I talked about today in terms of compliance and trade programs and what they should look like. Uh, and then the ICPA international compliance professional association, as well as SIA, the Society for International Affairs, they both offer a wealth of webinars and courses. And, and if you become a member, you know, conferences and things like that, that I've attended, spoken at, um, and I think that those are great organizations. Almost every, uh, you know, large law firm now, there's lots of boutique firms, but almost any, every large reputable law firm now has some kind of um, newsletter that you can usually get on the the membership list to and get a, get a daily or, or even weekly um, kind of update with what's going on in the world of international trade compliance. So uh, listeners are, are welcome to reach out directly to me for any any questions or issues, or uh, if I said anything they disagree with or, or uh, liked or loved on this podcast, feel free to reach out. I'm always looking to grow my network and meet other um, trade compliance professionals. And, uh, and yeah, those are some other really good, I think, I think resources for either the beginner or experienced professional professional to take a look at. So, Matt, uh, this has been great. Uh, I know I'm going to call upon you again to perhaps do this again. Uh, I judge uh, the value of a podcast by how much I learned, and I learned a lot. So Good. I'm sure the audience will as well. And I wanted to thank you and look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I, again, I really appreciate the invitation to come on today. I'll, I'll look forward to talking to you in the future, and, uh, and thank you again so much. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part podcast series where I interviewed Matt Silverman. We took a deep dive into trade and export compliance. We premiered a couple of new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network in October. Karsten Tams and I take a look at design thinking and how this social engineering tool can be used by a compliance professional. And on a passion project, I'm doing the Hill Country Podcast. In our initial episode, I visit with Kathy Ragsdale, the matriarch of Camp Stewart for Boys, located just outside of Hunt, Texas. So check out these podcasts as long, along with the 70 other podcasts now appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.